I will never believe that a hallmark of our faith is to look at somebody who loves differently than we do and say, for the sake of the gospel, I'm gonna walk away from you. What kind of gospel is that? Hi, I'm Brittany, and this is For Colored Nerds, the weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture we rarely discuss in mixed company. This week, Eric and I got to chat with theologian, writer, and author Candace Marie Benbow about her new book, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who consider tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. I wanted to bring Candace on to talk about one of the biggest, most foundational influences on Black culture, and especially Black women, the church. In her book, Candace challenges every idea of religion that we've come to know as gospel. She refers to God not as he, but they, them. She encourages the need for grace by telling her own story of being the other woman. And she makes the case that the Bible is a more overtly sexual text than we think. Stay tuned for all that and more after the break. Candice, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so yes. excited to have you. We really enjoyed reading this book. Thank you. What is Red Lip Theology and how did you develop it? Red Lip Theology is the lens through which I see myself as a Black millennial woman of faith. I felt like as Black millennial women, we don't have a lot of conversations around faith that are context in our experiences. And the truth that our experience is very different from our mothers and our grandmothers. And so I wanted to have a conversation about faith, about spirituality that we get, right? Relic theology was really born out of a way and a move that um, my best friend came to visit me and I was looking a mess. I had just like broke up with this dude and she was basically like, <laughs> you look a mess. He ain't coming back. Like, we got to figure this out. <laughs> and so she made me promise, you know, to invest in myself daily, you know, to put the extra time into how I looked. And I was honoring my commitment with her while also engaged in theological education. And so the two were really married for me in that way. What's the story behind the name? In the book, I talk about how one of my white classmates had got on my nerves. Like the thing <laughs> in Duke is whenever we would call out our classmates on their racism, they always wanted to go to lunch like or grab coffee to like prove to us that they were not racist. And I was just like, what I'm not gonna do is give you three hours of my day for you to try to find a way to tell me that you're not racist while confirming to me that you are actually racist. <laughs> <laughs> so I kept avoiding him. And then he catches me like one day in the library. So I'm like, damn. He comes to me and he's like, so Candace, I have a question. And I'm like, you know this finna go left, right? So <laughs> I was like, what is your question? And he said, do you consider yourself a Black theologian 
or are you a regular theologian? And I'm like, you ain't learned nothing in these classes, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sitting up here reading all these books, making sure I'm prepared for class, and you just up here, like, free-balling it, you know? And so I said, I'm a red-lip theologian. And he said, who created that? Where did that come from? And I said, I did just now as I was getting my stuff together to leave. And the funny part was, Though I was being snarky, it made so much sense to me to say and name that I was a red lip theologian. And so from that moment, I really began to craft what the framework for red lip theology is. And you get the beginnings of that framework in this book. I mean, you get that, you get you get a lot more. Like, even in just the part that you shared so far, you know, you talk about friend came, you had just, you know, had a bad breakup. You're like, I was looking a mess. That's your words, not mine. You know, and in the book, you you go even further. You know, you talk about leaving the church, feeling ostracized for, you know, being raised by a single mother, having a relationship yeah. with a married man. You put it all out there with, you know, honesty and no and no shame. I imagine that would be difficult. I have a podcast. We talk about our life often. I still struggle. But, uh, you know, I'm curious, like, what made you decide to be so open with your story? Yeah, I knew that it was important to heal and inspire other sisters to heal. And you can't heal without truth telling. Hmm. More than that, I couldn't do the work of holding the church accountable if, I wouldn't also tell the truth about my own stuff and why I had made some of the decisions that I made and done some of the things that I had done. And it was important for me to lift that this is about a journey to wholeness and you don't go all of the places that you need to go without being honest about some mm. of the places that you had no business going in the first mm. place. <laughs> now, I had my friends who were like, so what we not going to do is we not going to talk about this. Like, they did a whole intervention for me. Like, wow. they hyped <laughs> me up and was like, yeah, like, we're going to get on Zoom and, like, celebrate, you know, first draft, da, 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 da. I'm hyped, right? I get on there, I got my bottle, I'm thinking we finna celebrate all of them like Candace, we have talked amongst ourselves Ooh. and we don't think that you should put your situation with old boy in the book. And I'm like, heck I thought I thought we was gonna be drinking. Like what's going on? <laughs> and so it was out of deep and profound love mm-hmm. and respect. And I'm grateful, deeply, deeply, truly grateful to them for that. But I told them, I was like, nah, like, there are so many of us who have done some stuff we have no business doing, Mm -hmm. right? And we need to know that it's possible to move beyond those mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to help a sister who may find herself in this situation, whether it's now or years down the line, to be like, girl... Don't walk, run, because this is this is a mess and you deserve more. Um, and I also wanted to have a broader conversation about grace. Hmm. And I felt like 
What better way to talk about grace than to talk about it in the context of the person that we have the least amount of grace for? And that's mm. the other woman. Like, in any culture, any empathy, respect, grace, goes out the window when people find out that you're sleeping with somebody that's married. It's like, oh, whatever happens to you, you deserve it, right? And so I wanted a conversation that talked about the dimensions of grace through the lens of somebody that we don't think deserves it. Mm -hmm. And in this instance, it just happened to be me. It's interesting. I love that you bring up grace. Like this book feels like both allowing space for grace, but also like it feels like a real embrace of so yeah. many of the things that Black women and Black femmes are vilified for, not just in the church, mm-hmm. but pretty much everywhere else. Enjoying sex outside of marriage, being outspoken and embracing feminism and womanism, holding leadership in the church, holding leadership anywhere, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> living and, and and loving in queer community. Shoot, even wearing red lipstick. <laughs> <laughs> something that you're not even supposed to do in many congregations. I, and I'll also say, like, I'm actually not religious. I was raised in the church, but I was so excited by your book. What happens to Black women in the church tends to be what, what yeah. happens to Black American women at large. And yeah. I'm wondering, to that end, as your book is sort of just embracing all of these kind of thorny or tough topics, what has been the reaction to this book that centers the trickier aspects of how Black women occupy space? So on one level, you got the people who, I mean, they had damned me to hell before, so it's like, you know, I'm lost. (laughs) And there's no coming. (laughs) Like, it's one thing when people are like, all right, she used to talk about this on Twitter and Instagram. She had a blog. But, like, once you put it in, like, book form, like, oh, she is reprobate and, like, there is no hope for her. Mm. And I'm like, "Mm, I didn't really care what you thought about me, you know, anyway. But then there have been the women who I call them the ones who have their ears. They, like, they they wonder what I'm talking about. They hadn't tuned me all the way out. (laughs) They don't know if they fully rock with me yet. But the ways that they have been engaging this book have been mind-blowing to me that they will say to me like I don't know if I'm there with you on everything but I've been reading it and working through it and that's all that I asked for right Mm. the number of women who started book clubs to read Relative Theology has just blown my mind Mm. Baptist Women in Ministry the organization reached out in February to tell me that they were adopting the book for their April book club. And so they sent this book to Baptist women everywhere, inviting them to read it. And I remember I responded and was like, y'all know I cuss in this, right? Like, like, (laughs) I mean, I'm honored, but like, if you think this, and they were like, no, like we really want to have an honest conversation. So to have a denomination Hmm. push for it, to have people that are like, you know, how do we create curriculum around relative theology to have certain conversations? Like, it has been for the reasons, Eric, that you said earlier about how Hmm. vulnerable this was. Like, there is the chance that you can put yourself out there and then everybody will be like, look, 
that was you. I don't have nothing for this. You know, whatever. Like, that's possible. And then you have the moments where people are like, no, like, we actually want to critically engage this work and think about how we can live and be different. And all you can do is just sit and be like, man, like, this is, this is beautiful. This, this really is beautiful. So the response has covered the gamut, but more than anything, I've been overwhelmed by the support and Mm -hmm. the way that people are resonating with it. One of the things that I really resonated with is just like how your kind of late mother is such a kind of big part of the book and, and, you know, more practically, like your foundation, you know, Christianity and spirituality and religion. It is Mm -hmm. clear that she meant so, so much to you. Talk to us a bit about how she kind of laid that foundation for you and, you know, what you see as like the things that you kind of take from those beliefs and, and, you know, even some of the things that you spoke about, about how you had to kind of depart from her approach to Christianity. What is wild is that I never set out to write about my mom. Hmm. It just started happening. And part of me was like, oh God, like this is, is this the grief talking? Like, you know, like I was afraid that I was, I honestly genuinely was afraid I was bleeding Mm. over everybody. Mm. And because that was not the book that I had set out to write. But then when I let my editor read pages, and I told her this is what was happening. She was like, now nah, you've got something here. Like, mm. let's just take a moment and just and just sit with why you are writing so much about your mom. And the truth was, is that like, I don't come to know God without her. Mm. That is first and foremost. My mother was the first God I knew. You know what I'm saying? Like, her womb was heaven. Yeah. You know? She gave me life and saved my life more times than I can count. So before I knew there was a God, I knew I had a mama. And so then throughout life, watching her move and lean into and push against and construct this life for us, right? It couldn't be without, you know, her having a profound impact on me. I say in the book, and I say to people, one of the most, if not the most, difficult relationships Black women navigate is the one with their mama. Like, you Mm. know, you're trying to, even the most healthiest relationships with mother and daughter, you're trying to figure out how to be the daughter that either she wants or you think that she wants while becoming the woman that it's clear that you need to become. And oftentimes those two are, don't stand in agreement sometimes. And yeah. you trying to figure out how to be a daughter and a woman. And she trying to figure out how to be a mother and a woman. Mm-hmm. And it can get murky. And so the more I sat with it, the more we talked about it, it wasn't possible to really have an honest conversation about millennial Black women of faith and not also talk about mamas. Mm. Mm. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. A lot of who we are, whether we come to the faith, whether we walked away from it, whether we stay in it, some of it, a lot of it has to do with our mamas and even our own construction of womanhood. And so I rested in the truth that I had to tell it that way. Add to the reality that my mother's my mother's death was totalizing. It was unexpected. Mm. It was totalizing, and it propelled me on this journey of self discovery and a deeper, authentic faith relationship. So, my mother has been guiding me in life and in death, and. Relative theology, I hope, was and is a tribute to that relationship. You know, one of the things I didn't want to do and I hope I didn't do was like sanitize her in a way that wasn't honest about our complications. Like, you know, she's a great mama, but we could get into it, mm. you know, and I, and I wanted to show that a healthy relationship, a loving relationship has that too. And so, yeah, I I didn't think that I was going to write about her, but it makes all the sense in the world that I did. I love that you bring up the tension that can exist between mothers and daughters and how we can hold differing visions of what so many different aspects of our life should be like. And mm-hmm. you and your mother, you know, you bumped heads quite a bit in regard to faith. And it kind of felt like in the book, like obviously, she, you know, she's your mother and so important and telling your story. But also, it kind of felt like at times she did also represent like uh, a more established or traditional way of thinking about things or doing things with regard to faith. And it was so interesting in the book seeing all the different points at which you decided to go left and do something completely different. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I liked the most was how you coupled the idea of the gendering God with how sexism is present and misogyny is present in the Black church Mm -hmm. and how you refer to God with they, them pronouns. Talk to us about how you arrived at that insight of degendering God and how that's changed your ministry. Yeah, so part of it starts on a very practical level that at Duke, we had to write gender inclusive in our papers. So writing in a gender inclusive way regarding God meant that instead of he and himself or her and herself, we would use God and God's self, but that God had God's own pronouns, right? Mm -hmm. That pushed me to really reckon with how sacred I wanted my conversations about God to be because to me, using pronouns for God that I use for everybody else made God less common to me. And I wanted the ability to kind of restore a majesty and a care to my conversation with God that I felt like was lacking because I had gendered God. The other piece to that was that I was also coming to grips with a relationship with a trifling father (laughs) Hmm. and how thinking about God in terms of masculinity with my relationship with my father being what it was, 
was so fraught with so much stuff that it wasn't helpful. I'll put it that way. It just, it just was not helpful. And so I moved into this space of honoring that when I ungendered God, when we ungender God, we really unlock all of the possibilities of who God can be outside of that binary. Especially when we have people who are refusing that construct for themselves because of how they are living into their own identities, right? That like, what does it now mean for us to lift that people are non-binary and to honor that they get to have that existence for themselves, but don't create space for that same existence to be in the the most powerful deity in the world. Mm. And so I hoped and I needed it for myself to liberate God from the very masculine structures that only work to reinforce a certain kind of power for men that left me equally as vulnerable. Mm. And and I wanted to, to, you know, to name that like, that doesn't reflect God's heart in any way, shape, or form. And I hope that people get that from the work that that I was trying to do in that essay. I try very hard to intentionally and consciously use gender-inclusive language for God. I want to kind of lean into that a little bit. You know, I consider myself a Christian, but I've been struggling with, like, how I show up for that Christianity. I think one of the things I struggle with is, to be honest with my relationship to church itself as an institution. Right. And, you know, what I appreciate about kind of how you explore that is you call it out. You call out not just the sexism inherent in how we even refer to God, but, like, also— you know, the patriarchy, you know, mm-hmm. the, the homophobia, transphobia, you know, anti-blackness, all those things that can exist in our Christian spaces. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about how you think about the actual, like, damage that does to us today. Like you mentioned in terms of, like, Ooh. you feel like it doesn't feel like it connects with, like, what God's ideas for us are. But, like, what do you think that is? Yeah, what are the effects of that? On a very real level, a lot of it has, like, affected how we see ourselves and the ways that we value ourselves, we can think some very horrible and morose things about us that are rooted in things that we learned and heard from church and that are rooted in these uh, very destructive theologies. And so on one level, a lot of us are trying to fight against things that we should have never believed about ourselves to begin with, have been taught about ourselves to begin with. I think another way that it affects us on a very real level is it destroys community. Mm. A lot of us have walked away from church and will never come back. Mm. And in our community, church and family become very synonymous. Yes. (laughs) And when when you critique the church... Folks in your family think that you, you know, coming for their mix. Mm-hmm. And so when people have have distanced themselves from the church, they have also been distanced from their families. I keep thinking about Gerard Carmichael's stand-up Rathaniel. Mm-hmm. 
and his mother telling him, I can't go against Jesus. Mm. This is the person who gave him life, who he loves more than anything in this world, who is telling him that if it's between you and Jesus, I'm going to choose Jesus. Mm. And it's a selection of Jesus that isn't even rooted in what Christ would want himself. You know what Mm. I'm saying? It is causing an insane amount of shame and pain within the interior of our own lives, but it's destroying community and family. And you will never convince me that religion is supposed to do that, that a relationship with God is supposed to pit people against each other in that way. Even if you don't you don't have to agree. And when I say agree, be very clear. I'm talking about agreeing theologically. I'm not talking about agreeing with people's personhood and their their identity and their orientation. I'm th- talking specifically about like how we see things theologically. I think there's room for us to differ theologically. I think that that's how we have robust conversations in which we can grow. That's how iron sharpens iron. But I don't, I, I will never believe that a hallmark of our faith is to look at somebody who loves differently than we do and say, for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to walk away from you. Hmm. What kind of gospel is that? There's nothing that I want in this world or want to be a part of in this world that would disconnect me from the people that I love. And I, and I refuse to believe that a faith wants me to do that either. You know, another, another really compelling part of the book is the chapter on how you came to reconcile your sexuality with your faith. Mm-hmm. And it was so interesting, everything that you shared with regard to, you know, really doing that real work is real fun work, but really doing that real work <laughs> to <laughs> explore, get comfortable with yourself and your body and how that aligned with your faith. But I want to know, how did your spiritual work help you arrive at a healthy attitude about sex and sexuality? Because so many people Mm -hmm. never make that reconciliation, let alone have their faith be a driver toward getting to a healthy attitude about sex. Perfectly said. Um, A great deal of it was my refusal to let faith to let religion keep me bound in shame. And Mm -hmm. I think that when you free yourself of shame, you can free yourself from a lot of things and guilt around it. Add to that, that I had spent quite a lot of time, quite a significant amount of time, you know, studying that scripture isn't as black and white and as clear as people like to say it is regarding sex, sexuality, and sexual agency. It's just not, you know? Um, There's so many stories that that are celebrated that at the root of the story is sex, 
Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, mm-hmm. that story. Esther and McKean, like, they, like, at the root of so many of these stories is sex. Like, you're not going to tell me not to have sex and Rahab is in the heat in the hall of faith in Hebrews and Rahab is, was a whole sex worker. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, a whole sex worker. So, like, you're not going to tell me... <laughs> That sex is wrong, and we literally celebrate sis for throwing it in a circle and being able to deliver her pizza. Like, I just, like, no, like, you're not going to tell me that. There are much more nuanced and mature conversations that we need to have about sex and um, that the church has not afforded us. Add to that, I am convinced that God don't care about my sex life as much as people want me to believe God cares about my sex life. Like, Hmm. as long as my desires and my proclivities are not rooted in violence and manipulation and and an unhealthy power dynamic, you ain't gonna convince me that God cares what happens in my bedroom, (laughs) in my car, on my porch. I I mean, I, I just don't, like, I think God actually cares if I'm a fundamentally good human being. I think when it comes to my relationships, more than whether or not I had sex before marriage, I think God cares about whether I'm lying to my partner. I think he cares about whether or not I'm being emotionally manipulative or mm. abusive, whether physically, verbally, or emotionally. I care. God cares about whether or not I'm being decent to the people who love me, right? And like... When you move to those spaces and make room for humanity and your faith experience, it frees up so much stuff. Like, we are not robots, you know? And I tell people all the time, the worst place to get sexual education and to develop a sexual ethic is just from the Bible. We're talking about the same book that let husbands have 1,500 wives. 1,500? Like, Solomon had how many wives and how many concubines? And we actually believe that this was the wisest man on earth. Like, if we believe that that man, like, if he could do all that he did with all the women that he did it with, and we only count the women, hello, Mm. but we only count the women that Mm. he was engaged with sexually, and he's wise, you're not going to tell me that me having sex with my boyfriend before I'm married is just going to make me this this unstable creature. Like, <laughs> where we get that at in the book? You know, and so, again, it requires nuance that for whatever reason, people <laughs> refuse because they don't want Black women to own any level of their agency. In the book, you also, you know, you reference the work of a lot of other Black femme theologians like Mm -hmm. Dolores Williams, Monica Coleman, Renita Weems. Like, what did it feel like for you when you, like, discovered their work? And, like, I'm curious, like, how did it, how do you feel like it altered your thinking around, you know, how you even developed your own theology? It was like a breath of fresh air. Like, you know how, like, you read something and you've been waiting for it. Mm. You've been looking for this language. You hadn't found it. And the moment you find it, it's like, yes, this is it. That's what it felt like for me to, to, find, to find their work 
and to get connected to them in the ways that I got connected to them. And also it was an honor and it is an honor that my work, that my work is within their trajectory. Like I think too often we want to always say like, you know, we're doing something innovative. We're doing this new thing. And yeah, like for a lot of people, Brella Theology is new and it's innovative and it's a conversation that they would not have otherwise had or been able to have. And also, I'm grateful because it sits in a trajectory of women, of work by women that I deeply admire and their work saved my life. And so for Red Lip Theology to advance that and to introduce people to them who may not have otherwise, you know, known about them or came or come to know them much later is super dope to me. You talking about these Black female theologians and also like, you know, your work, it makes me think about something that came up literally like right before this interview. Twitter was lit up by the announcement of a theology book called Bad and Bougie Toward a Trap Feminist Theology. And it was written by a white theologian, woman named Jennifer M. Buck, who, you know, offered her love of trap music and her experience teaching hip hop dance classes. I wish I was making this up. I wish I was nope, making it up. You're not. But she put that in the forward of the book as her bona fides for why she was qualified to release this black feminist trap theology. How does all that noise affect the impact of black female scholars like you? For sorry, I saw your tweet. Uh, <laughs> it was your tweet that I saw. I'm looking at the numbers. It would have been viral. Um, my introduction to the book was I was half reading this email that somebody wanted me to do a panel, and it was putting Rail of Theology in conversation with Bad and Bougie. And they were sending an invitation to the author at the same time. Mm. And so I'm like, oh, snap. Like, I was like, who? Because this this world is small, right? So, like, I'm mm. like, when I tell you a handful of people that I would have assumed would be writing that, and I had not heard that this book was coming out. So I was like, okay. So I go and I look, and I'm like, I know a white woman <laughs> did not write. <laughs> I like, I, I, like, I, I <laughs> I know this didn't happen. And one of my friends at the same time was talking to me about it. And I was like, are you like, what? Like, it ticked me off for all of the ways I had to fight for my subtitle. My subtitle is uh, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. <laughs> and one, it's it's an homage to Indijaki Shanke's For Color Girls. Mm. And I remember being a kid. And I was walking around reciting lines from For Color Girls. And my mom was like, you have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. And I <laughs> didn't. But, but I enjoyed it. And I remember when For Color Girls came to our hometown of Winston-Salem. And my mother took me to see it. And I was mesmerized. And that stuck with me. And I knew that even as I was thinking about what this work would look like, I it, it had to stand in the trajectory of that work because that work 
helped me to see that it was possible to blend the secular and the sacred to really get to something beautiful and profound and and life-changing. And I'm meeting with <laughs> meeting with my publisher, and my publisher is like, maybe we need to change the word tithing because women may not understand or know what tithing is. I said black women do. You know, and then they were like, I was like, next question. And then they were like, well, let's not do beauty supply store. What about beauty counter? Um, black women all go to no beauty counter. We go to the beauty supply store. Like, I, you know, and so like the ways that I was also very clear, I'm going on my cover. When these white women write these books about Jesus and their faith, they on the cover front and center. Mm. I want to be on the cover of my book, you know? And so one, thinking about it from that angle, two, I just had a homegirl who had gotten her manuscript denied by an academic publisher for a second time. Wow. And here a white woman (laughs) gets to write about our experiences and get paid for it, you know, and to be given space to consider herself an expert because she taught hip hop when she was freaking in high school. You know what I'm saying? Like... Mm. The low, it is the height of insulting. And um, research continues to lift that Black women are the most religious demographic in America. And mm. yet we do not get to, we're not, we are not represented in that way when it comes to scholarship, when it comes to literature about faith and religion. And first of all, she had the opportunity. <laughs> this is what allyship does. If this was something profound that you believed needed to be dis- studied and discussed, then you use your privilege to move out the way and extend that opportunity to mm. Black women who are doing this work. Mm. You're not helping us, right? Mm. Like, you're actually just robbing from us. You stealing our stuff. We're, we're left to not be considered you know, authorities of our own lived experience. And then her publishing house had a commitment to say, we're going to do something different. In 2022, we're not going to publish a book about, you know, like, it just was all, (laughs) it ticked me off. Then the cover, I don't know if anybody has seen the cover yet. I saw the cover. It's a, it's a black woman with an Afro who's clearly, I had no idea she was probably on the cover. Like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) they knew what they were doing. Jennifer Buck, the author is not on the cover. She's not on Mm -hmm. the cover at all. And you know, some books will put the small photo of the author on the back. They didn't do that because they knew that they couldn't put a picture of her on the back of her book because folks would know that she's a white woman. But then you put a dark-skinned mm-hmm. black woman mm-hmm. with an afro mm. on the cover of this book about trap feminist theology, where the first sentence of the book is something like a trap queen is down for everything, is down oh for her God. name, down. Like it's terrible. But oh you God. have decided that this black woman, this dark skinned black woman with natural hair, 
is the embodiment of a trap queen. Mm, yeah. It's it's where we are. <laughs> it's where, exactly. It's where we are. It's where we are. What continues to be the problem is that these opportunities continue to get denied to us to author our own stories, our own experiences. But then white women get to white women, right? Mm. And then Mm. she gets called out on, and so she goes private on social media and then tells somebody that their critique was a knee-jerk reaction. And then her defense was that she had a a black a primarily black woman led research team and then she said her research team exactly okay freelancers why not exactly. let them write the book <laughs> what she said her research team and the women quote unquote she put this in quotes the women running trap were all paid well for their work in her book for the interviews and conducting the interviews now they're not getting no royalties but i digress Hello. And what is running trap? Like, it's the, like, like running trap. I was like, what, what are you even talking about? You know, you, you listen, you taught one class, you, you quote on the first page, she quotes Young Thug lyrics. That's how she begins the conversation. And, and we are supposed to, and the unfortunate part is that her book will, will stand in the canon as work to be considered. And that's the part that just ticked me off because it doesn't deserve it. I think that that tweet better live right beside it for me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, To close, I want to pivot back to, you know, church again as kind of an institution. Like, you know, I mentioned just for a lot of the things you call out the church for, you know, has been the reason why I kind of, I have struggled to go back. I've been trying to kind of find my relationship to it because mm-hmm. I, I miss even that community, you know? Mm-hmm. But that that's not a that's not necessarily a, a new trend. I feel like there are a lot of people kind of turning away from the church at this mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just wonder, you know, from your vantage, how how realistic is it to think that like church as an institution can, you know, wholesale kind of gain that ground back that it has lost in black communities. You know, considering the level of resistance to so many of the changes, you know, that, that like you outlined, that would make it a more hospitable place for like younger and more, I guess you would say, like progressive mm-hmm. people. It's a commitment that I don't think the church is willing to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that knowing that I have friends who are committed to doing things differently as preachers and as pastors. And so I'm grateful for the pockets that they that they create but i think as an institution one there's an unwillingness to really acknowledge true harm right like when we mm. talk about church hurt people will dismiss it and say you know it ain't church hurt you just don't want to be accountable to nobody no it was hurt. Yeah. <laughs> it was some stuff that I had no business hearing in church. It was some stuff that you had no business saying. Like, no, mm. no, we're going to call it spade a spade, right? And I mm. think until the institutional church, until the leadership in denominations and in large sects say, we're going to do differently and we're going to move this way, we're going to keep losing people. And then the dangerous part will be that 
that we have for the church are memories and not a hope for what it can be in the future. And I think that that is a heartbreaking reality. For what it's worth, I think I think that's why books like yours are so important because it was really refreshing. I think, you know, e- even Brittany and I, you know, we're kind of just talking about how kind of awesome it was to find that conversation that sometimes can be lost when you're not in that community space, mm-hmm. you know, of church. And so, you know, it just, it, it was really comforting to feel like I had that commune from, you know, even reading your story. So oh, thank at you. least from me, thank you so much. You, it, was, it, it was, you know, such a beautiful book and yeah. Thank, thank you for coming. You. Yeah, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us. Thank you. I really have enjoyed this. This has been the highlight of my day. So I'm, I'm glad we got to do this. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. For Colored Nerds was created by me, Eric Eddings, and Brittany Luce. It's supported by a production team at Stitcher, including producer Alexis Williams, story editor Gianna Palmer, social producer Elise Ellis, and engineer Marcus Hom. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from you so, so much. So please shout us out on Instagram at For Colored Nerds, on Twitter at For Colored Nerds. You can find us everywhere at For Colored Nerds. And tell your friends, too. We love it also when we're like, yo, my homie, cousin, best friend told me to listen to this episode and it was bomb. And then I subscribed. That's like my favorite song. So please do your, do your friend, do your community a favor and share an episode and tell us which one it was.